Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Glowworms, and welcome to the latest episode of The Vanity Project with myself, Vanity Von Glow. We are so happy to have you listening as regulars. Um, We're happy to have made the front page of a national newspaper here in the UK with our Don Butler episode and to be ranking on Good Pod's new podcast's top 50 earlier uh, in this season's run. Now, speaking of Good Pods, it's a platform that really supports new creatives who are creating content such as this. So if you aren't fussy about where you listen... Um, head on over there and subscribe on Good Pods. It will help our viewer or listener count. Maybe we'll climb higher in their charts. Um, and in the meantime, it's all very well that you've subscribed. But what about giving us a cheeky share? We don't pay for any advertising, so it's word of mouth alone that will help us grow our audience. So get tagging if there are people in your life who you think need me in theirs. Today's guest a bit later on is Candy Heels in Queen's Corner. She is the Hungarian pickpocketing drag queen renowned around London as a menace of a sexual nature. Uh, but before that, our main guest is Rebecca de Havilland, who I've known as a friendly acquaintance for a few years here in London. I love Soho and the network of people who work across as entertainers or in the bars and the pubs or in Rebecca's case, in advocacy and support work for HIV and sexual health with the Dean Street Clinics. I always love bumping into Rebecca. She's one of those people who, you know, you you bump into right side balance, you have a little laugh and a, a, a little gossip, and then go your separate ways. And it strikes me that trans people, because Rebecca is trans, are talked about quite a lot on podcasts and in the media and in the national debate. But because Rebecca and I are just friends, I just wanted to talk about her and her life instead of the debates that are raging around self-ID or which bathroom people should use. I know these are important subjects for some people and I know they're the hot topics of the day, but I do want this podcast to be authentic as well. And in some ways it feels lazy to just focus on the things that are the clickbait outrage subjects that the noisiest corner of Twitter are fixated on. We might get into all of that stuff down the line in another episode or maybe on another occasion with Rebecca because she certainly doesn't hold back. But for today, here is our conversation. My guest today on The Vanity Project is none other than Rebecca de Havilland. 
who is a trans woman living in London, and that's how I know her, um, for her work at the 56 Dean Street, which is a sexual health service here in London. Um, and she's a face about Soho. And as a fellow face about Soho, uh, we know each other peripherally, but I really was keen to get to know her life and circumstances a little bit more intimately, which is why I read His Name is Rebecca, the book that details uh, Rebecca's origins in rural Ireland as Eamon and growing up in a religious background, moving to Dublin and then to London and getting caught up with drugs, alcohol, the underworld and all the rest. So she's here to talk about her life today. Uh, my guest, Rebecca, welcome. Hi, great to be on. It's great. It's great to see you and great to chat with you as well, I have to say. I know. So, it's so nice. It bring it on. Bring it on. Yeah, well, I'm 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 happy to have another guest who I I know a little bit because we've met a handful of times and are always uh, you're you're good friends with one of my really good friends, Lady Lloyd, and it's always so lovely to see you. You're one of those people in Soho, Soho who's got a real sense of chill. You you have a calmness to you, and I often find that those people are the people who've had a turbulent life previously. Reading your book, I was struck by. Although you have had one life, it feels like you've actually had many lives. Um, in the beginning, you grew up in, in Ireland in the 60s and 70s, and it struck me how radically different Ireland that you describe in the book is from the Ireland that I know. I visit Ireland a lot, I do shows in Dublin, and I've just come back from a little tour down the West Coast for a TV show. So tell me what Ireland was like, um, and tell the listeners what Ireland was like when you were a young person? Um, very, yeah, um, basically, kind of listening to your intro to me, it's very good. It actually almost read like another book, you know, kind of going through all I went through, very Catholic garden, and then kind of um, ending up on the streets of Soho. As my friend, one of my friends, dear friends, Hannah, wrote a song about me called Washed Up on Sh Soho Shores, which it says it all really, but, Going back to, um, I was born in 1958, uh, June 1958, and I was born in a very kind of small town in the Midlands, Ireland. Um, I come from a pretty well-to-do family. Um, we always had like our own businesses, land and all of that. Maybe for the first six years of my life, they were quite idyllic. Mm -hmm. I was never aware of the fact that my mom and dad had separated when we were only babies. And that my mum was kind of considered a deserted housewife in the town. Anyway, she went to uh, Dublin and went to college and all that. But I was never aware of this. I just always remember my wonderful granny, the shop, um, going to school. Um, the one thing I hated, how I ended up being a hairdresser, I often wondered. Because I used to be brought to the barbers to get my hair cut. And I used to go absolutely ecstatic, like go crazy. And I just realized years later that I didn't want my hair cut. I wanted long hair. So then I would run home and put neck curtains on my head. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's why I love seeing the way kids can express themselves today. But I was very lucky to have a granny who allowed me to do that. But that was kind of then and then from the age of seven my life changed very drastically from the age of seven after my first holy communion myself and my brother were put into a boarding school in dublin um, and for the first time i suppose i realized i was a boy because it was an all boys school before that it was the mixed school and 
my best friend was a girl, all of that. So it was just like really, really weird for me. It was a really, really strange. Yeah, it was very strange for me. Um, I'm very sure it was it was suddenly being in an all male environment that you realized from the absence of women that um, that you were categorized by society as a boy. Because yes. suddenly you were like, oh, I'm in with this lot. Yes. And it's actually, it's, it's, uh, I am, I'm glad you said that from a, a house full of women. And I come from a very strong female background within my family. Like nearly all the generations, it's been predominantly females, very few males. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the in my family are forced to be reckoned with. Yes. <laughs> I didn't lick it off the plate or off the floor, you know? So, and then I got, then I remember I wasn't that long in boarding school. And it's a story I'll kind of briefly go over because it's important I mention it, but not go into it because it's it's deep and it's heavy. Um, I started, I was child abused by two two Christian brothers for four and a half years, you know, and... um, I was made believe that it was my fault. And then it got to a stage by the time I was 11 and a half, I was kind of used to it. It had become part of my life. I thought I was protecting my younger brother, um, which of course I only know now in hindsight, you know, pedophiles, you know who to target and who not to target. Yeah. And I'm obviously a target. But I remember that they stopped abusing me. I was around 11 and a half or 12, coming up to 12. And I left boarding school at 12. So I think it was either because I had gotten too old or the fact that they knew I was leaving. You know what I mean? So they kind of stopped. But I remember actually it was the first time I actually felt rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, at 11 and a half, I felt, what had I done wrong that they had stopped using me? It's um, it's something I, I suppose some listeners would be aware and, and others less aware. You detail it well in the book um, that actually, you know, what, one of the lasting traumas of such abuse in childhood is that it it confuses the sort of sense of um, of affection and, you know, and earned affection or feeling that that even though, you know, what was happening was awful, it was actually sort of it creates a twisted dynamic in in the mind of the child because the child's still growing is still learning what's what's appropriate um so that yeah so that was your first experience of rejection at around 11 at around 11 and i just kind of quickly going into that too you know like people's idea of awful to me back then was my was my idea of normality you know, and then I did come out of boarding school at the age of 12. My birthday is in June, so I kind of, um, yeah, I was just kind of, just kind of turned 12 when I finished school there. And then went to secondary school. I went to a rugby school. I mean, come on. But I often hear a lot of people like from the LGBT plus community kind of say that they were bullied in school. Apart from being sexually abused, which I think was enough to deal with. I never got bullied by other kids or anything like that. Yeah, I was always a bit of a ringleader. I always led a pack. I was always, you know, in the back of the class. I was always the the naughty school kid, you know. And then been going into a day school, and even though it was rugby, I just felt I felt free, and I felt I didn't have to perform or be anything anymore. And I did definitely become the wild child teenager, 
you know, by the by the age of 15, I'd been expelled twice from two schools and no school would have me. So it was Granny that kind of said, well, put him in hairdressing because he's always playing with dolls and hairs. And I excelled and it was an amazing time for me because at this stage, I was 13 in 1971, so the start of the 70s, mm -hmm. which was an amazing time to be a teenager. I know we all go on today about non-binary and gender fluid. We had it in the 70s. You must remember, we had David Bowie, Mark Movements Bowie. Movements and all of this stuff. Yeah, glam rock. You know, and for me, it was a great place to hide, you know, because everybody had long hair. Everybody kind of wore platforms and flare jeans and all of that. Really and truly, darling, you couldn't tell the difference who was Arthur or Martha back then. Yeah, yeah. the long hair, everything. Yeah, and that it, was six great men and the loss, you know? I'm interested there, because when you're talking about your grandmother, it echoes with me, my relationship to my granny growing up. Um, obviously, there's a lot of differences in our in, in our upbringings uh, because of space and time. But in, in Scotland, uh, when I was growing up in the 90s, my, my granny wouldn't care at all if I was dressing up in women's clothes and stomping around the house. Now, um, you know, I, I, I haven't turned out to be trans, but certainly I'm a performer who loves theatrical clothing and presenting my performance as a, as a sort of female diva. Um, and that was something that like th there's a wisdom, I think, in, in grandmothers a lot of the time that they're able to see that actually this isn't this is harmless behavior. This is something that the boy likes. And yeah. and, they're, you know, by the time that you've got grandkids, you know, there's bigger fish to fry or to worry about than whether or not your kid wants to put your lipstick on or something stupid like that, you know. Exactly. So true. And it's really strange to say that because I'm a grandparent myself today. So I agree with you on that. And I think <laughs> grandparents, grandparents get to do what you can't get to do as a parent uh -huh. for summer. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, and I think my grandmother was great. And sadly, she kind of passed away when I was only about 15 or 16. And I often say if she had lived till I was older, I don't think she would have allowed the things, the family rejection and all of that. You know what I mean? I think she would have been a power to be a force to be reckoned with, really. But, you know, everything is fine in hindsight. You know, it's kind of like going back into that then as well. You know, it was still, even though everybody was in the 70s, very, you know, T-Rex and very glam rock and all of that. There was still the conservativeness of Ireland and the Catholicism and all of that to deal with. So what I am, um, I still had to hide behind all of that. I couldn't come out. And then I think when I got into my later teens, it, it changed. That's right. I know that you were married. Um, you're, yeah. You married a woman um, yeah. when you were about, what, 20, was it? 20. I was a parent by the time I was 21. Yeah. Which which sounds kind of crazy today, but actually I think was less unusual then, but probably less unusual then in Catholic Ireland as well. You know, to, to be married yeah. was, wasn't as unusual as, I mean, nobody gets married in their 20s now, right? Yeah, exactly. And I suppose as well, as the, the, the 70s were coming to a close, then we were looking, uh, the only way I can describe, I can only describe it through music because Music has always played a huge part in my life. So we'd kind of gone from the glam rocks and the T-Rexes and all of that, then into Saturday Night Fever, do you know what I mean? And Greece yeah. and all that. So, you know, then all of a sudden there was the distinction, distinction again between male and female. And it was very obvious. You know, you had John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John who were yes. obviously, you Our know. In their way. 
Yeah, so I, I kind of had to fit into that. And then there was a lot of pressure being put on me. Are you gay? Are you queer? Are you a faggot? All of these things. And, and do you know what? I always felt I wasn't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I didn't know what I was because we didn't have internet back then. We yeah. had nothing to look at to tell me who I was. All I knew that deep inside me, I wanted to be a girl and I knew being a Catholic, I would rot in hell for even thinking that way, let alone knowing about it. And the only people that were available for me to see back then was an Irish drag queen here in Dublin, back in Dublin, and his name was Mr. Pussy or Danny LaRue on the good old days in London. There was nothing for me to identify. So I didn't feel I was that. And I did try the gay thing, of course, you know what I mean? But for me, that felt the same as me sleeping with a girl or sleeping with a boy, as long as I was in the wrong body. You said something in the book about gay men that I found interesting. You said, I didn't feel about men what gay men felt about men, that aggressive stalking instinct. Um, I know that saying that's something that some listeners might consider to be controversial. I consider that to be completely anodyne, remark like in my experience and this is not all gay men but when you extract women from a sexual equation and men can just have sex readily and freely like you know yes there is a little stalking and I don't mean stalking people home but you know the gay male psyche in the public sphere has been developed in a backdrop of cruising because it was a way to have sex anonymously and safe well not safely but more yeah. perhaps safe from the rejection of a man who turns out to be straight. So, you know, you yeah. must and I, like my right. But yeah, and I, that, I'm glad you actually brought that up because that's very seldom brought up when I do when I do any any talks. And you must remember, like around that time, like even the movies, you know, Al Pacino was a cruising and all of that. It was all very. And for, when I was that age at that time, the, the gay scene was very, you were either a clone. Yes. You know, or Which you is were, like the Tom of Finland, the jeans and the muscles, right? Yeah, and a bit of leather thrown in. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And but the moustache. But they were at the bar asking for a gin and tonic, dear. You know what I mean? But look, yeah. or you had them, we were just classed as queens. Yeah, Julian Clary. So we were, we were even on the gay scene like treated derogatory in a sense to if you were camp or feminine or anything like that so I really felt I didn't fit anywhere to be quite honest at that time in my life do you know Graham Norton Graham Norton said in his book that he actually found it harder growing up Protestant in Catholic Ireland than he found it being gay he said that actually he felt more othered for being Protestant, that he was the only Protestant in the village, you know, uh, or his family were the only Protestant family. It struck me in the book that it's, is it the case possibly that um, for you, it was sort of harder to be gay than to be trans in a way? Because once because once you were on, on your, you know, further down your journey and you're transitioning yeah. and then ultimately, you know, sort of fully transitioning, if that's ever a term to use in the late 80s. Um, I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts that's on that very, now? Yeah, that's a very good point. And like, I, I actually kind of, um, I can understand actually Graham saying that because even yeah. like the town I would have grown up, like I came out of my Catholic church every Sunday, you know, at the top of the hill. And across the road from it, 
was this very sad looking Protestant church. We were told not to look at it. Yeah, well, if it's anything like Scotland, you know, a, a Protestant church is comparative to a Catholic church, is a very like bread with no butter and no jam. Do you know what I mean? They're very stark and and uh, yeah. old and there's no cushions on the pews and it's all a little, yeah. yeah. So I can understand exactly how he must have felt actually in that sense, because if yeah, so it must have been quite difficult for him doing that. But um, kind of, I kind of went off there a second. You were asking me, can you re-ask oh. me what you- yeah, so so um, what was my question about Graham Norton? Oh, yes, that it was perhaps he said it was harder to be Protestant than than gay for him. And actually, it struck me in the book that it was perhaps more difficult for you to be gay than to be trans. It sort of didn't necessarily fit, partly because it wasn't authentic for yeah. you. But and I, that you were perhaps that, received better in some ways once you transitioned as well, because... You know, well, some of the some of the gays in Ireland at the time, back in the day, and I will say it as it is, as you know, I will. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just now today, I do have a voice. Please do. And I, yeah, and they would like they thought they were horrified that I was transitioning when they found out. You know, in the Sunday papers, and some of them said, "We're calling me a fake gay." You know, yeah. and how dare you come under our umbrella? Right. You know, I mean, I got I got pretty pretty nasty stuff from a lot of the, the the clones and that you know back in the day when I was a hairdresser and doing their hair and they just thought, oh my god, you're so fake, you know. And I felt like saying, well, oh my god, I didn't know that I could be a woman, you know, yeah. you know. So yeah, so I got a lot of ridicule on the Irish gacy. Yeah, yeah, you know. Well, I mean, you know what? I mean. <laughs> I was actually reflecting the other day in Soho with a friend of mine how just some of the staff in one of the bars we were working in were just a little bit uh, being a little queenie, you know, being just a little ignorant, nothing too bad. And they're actually usually very lovely. And um, and I was just cackling to my friend because I was like, I know it's actually <laughs> they're being badly behaved, but I kind of like one of the things I enjoy about gay people is is there is always just a little bit of drama bubbling away, which, you know, if you've got an appetite for it, it can be quite entertaining. Obviously, you know, when you're the only trans person around and you're and you're feeling isolated, I imagine that was quite lonely, actually. It really was. And then, like, I mean, but it did, for me as well, if, and it's very, you, you, another very good point you made there, but when I actually eventually found out that I could change and I could be and that I wasn't alone yeah. and that it wasn't something that only I felt like this you know because for a long time I just thought there's something really evil wrong with me and I would go back to even the time of being abused as a child and blame all that because they would say to me that it was my fault that they were abusing me so my head was pretty messed up yeah you know but the fact that then I wanted to be a girl that's all I ever wanted to be was a girl and I am, uh, you know, and I had to think that, but not show it or, you know, be that. But you're right. When I did find out that I could be and when I could express it and when the press had rinsed me out he- here, you know, when I was a top model agent here and a top hair makeup artist, and I lost my career overnight because I was having a sex change, as it was called back then. Yeah. It's horrendous, horrendous. But... I got myself back into Soho. I brushed myself down. And you know what? For me, 
it was worth losing everything to find myself, to find, to be able to name that tune in one, really, for me. That's how. So your story went from Dublin. Um, I mean, obviously, in the conversation I'm having now, this is like a whistle stop tour of your life because the book goes into far more detail. I mean, I think that uh, from your travels in Europe, Amsterdam, Dusseldorf, you were able to see some sort of European uh, women who had transitioned or indeed who were or even just transvestites and drag queens and and all sorts, which maybe there weren't in Dublin. So you you find yourself back in London. And I love that you seem to split your time between Dublin and London. Like, you know, you've never really escaped Ireland. No, No, it's still home. I feel that with Scotland. I love going back. Um, I I, I don't have complicated relationships there anymore. Well, I don't think I do. Maybe I did, though, when I was younger. Um, but anyway, so you, you go your, your career essentially throughout that whole time through. So there's the drama of your life and there's the the internal drama of reconciling with the events of your past. Um, but actually, you're also doing quite well as a hair and hairdresser. Um, did you yeah. and makeup as well? Artists as well um, yeah. But also you're you have a, had a model agency in Dublin. So you're kind yeah. of in and about the glamorous lives of the people that you'd expect. I mean, the same, you know, the same people that we're around these days, you know, yeah. the pop well, stuff, I just, the social just to give you an idea of like, I mean, the, the extent of my career back then, you know, um, was, you know, I had three Miss Islands in a row. A lot of the, the, the extras that were used, even in the commitments, were from my agency. You know, I also um, did Philip Tracy's hair and makeup for his first hats. I also worked with John Rocha, Paul Costello, do you know what I mean? Um, and also um, Bruce, Bruce Oldfield did his first show in Dublin and I did the hair and makeup on that. So that's the level of stuff. I was working then as well with all the kind of Irish magazines like You Magazine, It Magazine, Image Magazine. And then I started kind of being an image maker as well. So, I mean, my my, I, I, it was really weird because the more successful I became, the harder it was for me to be me. Right. You know, it was, everyone accepted me being androgynous you know the bit that actually really pisses me off and I'm saying that word strongly because I mean it was when the Irish press had the audacity anyway to kind of you know tag me back in the day as gender bender and then they were all so goddamn shocked when I did bend the gender yeah well it's that you can't win in a way I mean that's the problem with that kind of tit for tat schoolyard media is that really they're just trying to get a rise out of people and you see that today I think that that's kind of how people uh if you go on Twitter you know we all know the sort of personality type of the type of person who loves to join a pylon who loves to to have the quickest or wittiest response to someone else's turmoil and really they're just uh sort of like ant-like versions of tabloid newspapers. They're just going around trying to make a clever pun at someone else's expense. Uh, I mean, it's really not calling to our better nature, that sort of thing. Um, it's um, it's striking to me that, that um, a lot of the people I know who've had successful careers that are sort of nightlife adjacent, because you were working around so many clubs and stuff along that time as well, and press openings and champagne receptions and all that stuff is that you were kind of able to do all of that whilst also for much of the time being off your face yourself. 
Um, this is something that, you know, my I've been performing for 12 years and I look back and there have been periods where actually I've been really uh, just sort of billowing from pillar to post with alcohol and substances. Um, over the course of the 90s, I think particularly, I mean, you were married in a marriage where there was where there was drug use all the time. And, you know, drugs really got the better of you during that period. I've been married three times altogether. Do you know what I mean? You're aiming sure. for the Liz Taylor. <laughs> I know. Uh, but yeah, you're dead. You're you're so right. And I actually went from it, which my family were most shocked about because I was that teenager. Even at my 21st birthday, I hadn't, I didn't drink. Yeah. I didn't give that. But then through the pain of what um transitioning did and the way I was treated and the way I lost everything and then working it I like you know yourself I ended up working for in CD nightclubs and so late night drinking bars and all of that yes. and I started doing um I was broke I was potless at this stage you know after going from earning really good money but I still had to save money to have my operations you know which yeah. in the late 80s cost me all you know for my breasts and for my lower surgery was ten thousand pounds which was a lot of money back then yeah you know and it's still going through the same thing with the gender identity clinic and all that anyway i started working in these cd bars and then i started doing escort work very glamorous do you know what i mean and it was all champagne and cocaine and you know being flown here and being driven here and being and you know what, to even do that, I had to do this stuff because it was, how else would I do it? You know what I mean? Unless I was off my face. And one thing then led to another, but it wasn't a very long journey before I went from champagne to cocaine to heroin and crack. I'm yeah. working on the streets of Soho. I'm picking butts off the streets of Soho to smoke, you know, and... It's like I was only recently sitting outside one of the coffee shops on, on my uh, lunch break from Dean Street. And I was coming up to my 15 years now, sober, clean and sober. And I just got this flashback and I thought, do you know what, Rebecca? What are, you've been through these streets in every shape and every form. Yeah. In every, you know, in every role almost. Yes. Because you know, when, you're in, when you're in a place like, for, to paint a picture for people who maybe don't know... London or maybe don't live in a big city you know places like London or when I go to Berlin and I guess you know any city of a certain size um I mean we know I know the homeless people in Soho and I'm on fairly friendly terms with them you know because I, I I'll be stood outside chatting to the customers of the show they're smoking the homeless people come up they see me five times a week so they that we have a chat and we're friendly and and then yeah. And, you know, and then there's, you know, the bouncers and the bar staff and everybody else. And there's everyone sort of playing a different role. And you've actually played every role from the hostess to the to the client, yeah. to the to the to the person asking for help and for money. And I mean, that that must I mean, it must give you such a perspective. I was a stripper in Soho. I worked in the working girls flats in Soho. I was the only trans woman to ever work in them. And you know what I mean? But I mean, I literally... The things I had to do and be just to be me is ludicrous. You know, it's absolutely ludicrous. It, you know, it shouldn't, it, it's like, yeah, it just still shocks me. And I suppose that's why I do what I do today, to be there to help others. Maybe if I can just help edit something, 
in their lives to direct them in a different direction. If there had been, I often wish that there had been a me of today around when I was, you know, kind of going through this because it is, it, it is hell. And I mean, the only place I felt safe at one stage was Soho because we were all there. We were all people. We were like a melting pot of craziness of different yeah. walks of life, of different everything, you know, and being a, being a, I, I, hey, people can say, oh, you can't use, being a tranny or being whatever, I use whatever words I like about me, thank you. Because there's been a lot worse said about me than somebody calling me a tranny. Yeah. You know, um, and I just really kind of gets to me, you know, oh, you can't do this. I can do what I like, thank you. Right. Well, it strikes me that with 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 the word tranny, which in London we used, you know, we had a nightclub called Tranny Shack, which was the home of... Uh, for yeah. 20 years was the home of the trans and drag and gender non-conforming and what you would now call non-binary and queer communities. Yeah. And because there had kicked up a, a fuss in America online on Facebook about the use of the word there as a pejorative, I feel like teenagers in this country who had never been out to Tranny Shack or to clubs and, and bars and found that a lot of trans people in this country were, were pretty chill and good humoured about that word. Um, uh, a lot of teenagers sort of graduated into adulthood with basically an American rule in their head about British language. And actually, yeah. uh, it's one of the things I was, I mean, I was reading the book and I was chuckling to myself every time you used the word, because I thought, you know, this this word does upset some people. And, and OK, that's that's unfortunate. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's anyone's place to tell you whether or not you can use it. In fact, it's one of the things that I that I've uh, that I've always liked about you is that um, having been through the ringer, uh, you're able to sift the important things from the uh, from the minutiae and you're able to keep it real because of that. Yeah, and I think it's really important because there's so many, I, I just sometimes, like, I, I, people will often talk to me that are transitioning or, you know, and I just, and they kind of, tell, and I, I just kind of go to them, darling, you don't have to preach to me. Or sometimes when I do my project boot camp, some of them when they come in for oh it's okay for you look at you now I, I look at you and I said okay I said let's read it back and I tell them my story and they can't actually they find it hard to believe that I've gone through that do you know what I mean yeah but they, suppose I put up with a lot of bullshit back in my day you know and I'm at a stage now in my life where I don't do bullshit and I won't put up with bullshit do you know what I mean and I actually do I actually really I mean, I spoke out about my HIV. I was silent about that for 29 years. I speak out now. Do you know what? You don't have to listen to it. You know, you can go. You don't have to listen to it. But if you are going to listen to it, then I'm going to tell you as it is. I'm yeah. not going to sugarcoat it. You know, I was at something very recently and it was all about trans and it was very corporate and it was all very thing. And, you know, people say, oh, I'm not, I'm not used to this limelight. Well, then get off the fucking stage. Yeah. You know? Oh, my God. Are you on stage? If you're not, if you don't want the limelight. And also it's, you know, and this is where I'm kind of really going to rant just a little, but you know, it's all this. I love a rant. There were these badges with he and him and they and them and she and her, and they're all wearing the lanyards. And I said, I'd love you to talk to some of the girls that I work with that are starving. Oh God, I know. Whether you've got whether you're using your pronouns yep. or your lanyard, put your money where your lanyard is or your Did pronouns are. This is something that I hadn't expected this podcast to become personal for me 
in the sense that because I because I'm I've chosen to interview people who I find fascinating. You know, we've 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 had Peter Tatchell on, who obviously is incredible. Um, uh, we we've actually had Peter Crykant, who is a. I, I wonder if you're familiar with him. In in Glasgow, he has set up a drug consumption van for. He wouldn't use this word, but for 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 you know junkies for for drug users who are using in the closes and in the alleyways in Glasgow it's a place for them to use safely um and it's basically part of a broader more holistic way of trying to assist these people in controlling their drug intake i know that you you know you've been on methadone to substitute for heroin yeah. is that something yeah. you still have to take by the way is that Oh, no, thank God. Thank God. And like, I mean, the, I actually kicked kind of heroin and methadone before I kicked alcohol. So I probably yeah. kicked that about 15 years ago. And I think it was only when I kicked all of those drugs, like heroin, like crack and all of that, that I realized that I had an actual drink problem because I was able to consume so much alcohol when I was drugging that I didn't even feel the alcohol touch the sides. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, this this is the this is this is the thing is that talking to Peter Crichton about the methadone situation uh, in uh, you know for example in Scotland, um, if you've just come out of prison and you need to get your methadone supply, they won't give you your methadone supply unless you can prove that you're currently using heroin. So people then get back on heroin to get their methadone. So there's yeah. there's problems there, and uh, this it turns out is quite personal in my life when I. I I was adopted when I was very young and I've learned a lot about my birth mother in, in, in recent times. And, and I had sort of always faintly understood this would be the case, but she was a heroin addict. And so, you know, I'm a child that was taken away from a woman because she couldn't look after me because she had amongst other things, addiction problems and uh, problems of abuse and, and all this sort of stuff. So um, having the conversations with, um, I think with robust personalities like yourself who have been through difficult things, it kind of illuminates to me that there are problems in society around inequality and around the provision of care for people who really need it. And meanwhile, a lot of, uh, a lot of people are sat at their laptops debating pronouns. And I know that those are, people are entitled to have them yeah. close to their heart, the issues that are close to their heart. That is, com that's completely fine. I wouldn't take that away from anyone. Um, but it seems to me that you know we're arguing about pronouns when there's 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 people that yeah. that need rehabilitation and and, and can we, um, let's argue, let's maybe try and do both if we're gonna if we if we can yeah. if we want to but um there's a there's a comment you made in the book that I wondered how it would hold up today because obviously you published his name is Rebecca in ten years ago um, yeah two thousand actually and then it was published in twenty ten so but I'd finished writing it in 2009. Because when I was thinking about, first of all, there's been a huge change in, in how Ireland is from when you yeah. grew up to, to today. But there's a huge change from even today to 10 years ago. In the book, you say at one point that gender is the sex which you identified with, uh, sorry, gender is the sex which you identified most with and behaved like. Sexuality is which sex you are attracted to. There seems to be a bit of a a pie flinging contest going on in the media just now about whether or not a, a gay person is same sex attracted or same gender attracted. So obviously this is what the sort of trans activists and the, and the trans exclusion radical, radical feminists are all fighting over. Um, you know, the Kathleen Stock is concerned that, um, that, that, that lesbians are same sex attracted. So if somebody is a trans woman, then they're not, 
uh, going to be the object of a lesbian's attraction. Um, are you familiar with any of this debate? As it I I am, me- um, it's quite messy, and I'm I, I'm looking on from the sidelines, wondering how how everybody's why is everyone so uncivil? Yeah, and I do hear a lot of trans women kind of go about turfs and all this or turfs or whatever they're called. You know, I just don't give the any of it the time of day. Yes, I spoke earlier. You spoke earlier about social media and Twitter. Do you know what? I've been through so much crap and shit in my life. I'm not going to let social media or somebody that's probably hasn't got a face up on their Twitter account. And they're probably sitting at home. And they're probably about 10 sizes too big with a pizza in front of them, slagging me off. Let them slag. I really don't care anymore. I'm really past caring like that. And I do think that a lot of people care too much about it. You know, I'm sorry. I, I like men. End off. Do you know what I mean? Right. That's. I, you know, it, 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 I just like men. I don't like, I didn't, I don't, I haven't become a trans woman and then become a lesbian. But I know that happens. Listen, who are, whose business is it anyway? Well, but this is the thing is it strikes me that I spoke to Peter Tatchell about this a little bit. Like, I'm not sure that we're doing the most productive thing for our collective mental health by asking for validation from one another so much. Like at the end of the day, if you've transitioned and uh, let's say, uh, I just don't know that we need to be vindicated or validated by the state or by the collective. Like actually we've sort of got ourselves to a place where generally, I don't think anybody cares who you love generally in this country, right? it, it seems to me like a lot of the online discourse is around people feeling erased or invalidated. And I'm not sure that that's actually a thing, you know? I, I kind of sadly think as well, it's, a, it's coming from a lot of people within the transgender non-binary community as well, that they're making such a big deal about it. You know, I just feel, do all trans people or non-binary people or LGBT people feel that there has to be some form of drama in our lives for our lives to continue? Well, it's possible that some people are. I mean, I know it from my own experience in life. I think I've been emotionally addicted to drama at times. We've all been in relationships where you find yourself in cycles. You commit yourself to bad behavior or to, to dramatic behavior, that gets negative results because that feels like home because maybe you're used to having an argument or maybe you're used to having a fight or or whatever else because maybe you know we i think we're becoming increasingly aware as a society around our own mental wellness about our sense of self-worth and knowing that sometimes we opt into toxic relationships because we think they're right for us because we think we deserve a toxic relationship and you know i think that's something that um we're starting to understand more broadly um, I, it, I mean, I, so many of the trans people that I know I, I could have fascinating conversations about gender identity, gender and identity separately, about what it is to be a human. It's almost like a, there's something of the philosopher to some trans people because they've developed a very interesting marginal perspective on things. Um, and I think that to whatever extent I'm an interesting person, it's because I've, I'm a marginal person too. I don't want yeah. to necessarily be in the centre, validated by who? The white yeah. loaf of bread people right in the middle, you know? 
the Holly Willoughby. God bless Holly Willoughby, by the way. I'm not slagging her off, but you know, just the the perfect ideal middle person in society. I don't care for their acceptance. That's actually, do you know what? That's really good because I'd often say, even now, you know, as much and all as all my life, all I ever wanted to be was a girl, you know, and that for it yeah. to be my life. But when I look back on it now, I'm, you know, and I've gotten to where I am today, I'm, I'm proud to be a trans woman. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And what I had to go through has made me the woman I am today, you know, and make me the voice that I am today. And it's amazing too, because I say it as it is, I'm not saying everybody likes it. And, and you know what? I spend most of my life trying to make everyone like it. Now I don't. But you know what? People actually respect me because I will say it as it is. And it's getting to a stage now where I kind of get really kind of pissed off because I'm trying to help girls get into the workplace. And you hear employee employers saying, oh, yeah, I don't know. But what if we misgendered them? And there's people who are actually so fearful now about misgendering us or misgendering people that it's gone on to it's gone off on its it's got its own legs now yeah because relationships start off on the wrong foot i mean john cleese points out quite well you know the great comedian that actually like a form of national teasing goes on between like the british and the french or goes on between the Scottish and the British, the English, right? Or even the Irish and the English. Uh, well, yeah. the jokes we make about Irish people. And actually part of that teasing, if you're out at a dinner and it's people you don't know too well, or it's a new work dinner thing and there's an Italian there, there's some very broad, silly trope that, that a joke will be made and the Italian will have a joke for the French person. And, you know, living in London, half my friends are from Germany, Spain, you know, all these different places. And yeah. That kind of teasing is part of the bonding pro- process of relationships. I don't see why trans people should be excluded from that because the trans people I know have a wicked sense of humour. And actually, yeah. if you go into a workplace and everyone thinks that you're the humourless one that's scared of being misgendered, it doesn't set you up well for a good relationship. No, and I, I agree with you totally. Do you know what I mean? And I just, I love a good slag and a good, you know what I mean? A good slagging and a good bit of fun like that. And you need to have that. You need to have banter. You need to be able to, yeah. I just think, I for me, I personally think that it's just gone a bridge too far with everything. We need to pull it back a bit. Do you know what I mean? I really, genuinely, I'm all for people using their pronouns. I'm all for people being who they are. My kind of saying would be at the end of the day, just be yourself, whatever it be. Well, that's the thing is that for all the labels in the world and labels have their uses, so I'm not bashing yeah. them per se, but for all the labels in the world, like, you know, the the label we all have is our name. That's who we are. Yeah. Um, and and really the the most accurate label for you as an individual is you, is 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 yeah. is that. And um, so as we as we wind up actually, that was something that I thought was striking the book as well, because you've had a few names over the years you were aiming to begin with, and then you, as as a professional name, you were going by Ross Talon, and then obviously now Rebecca, and your book is published as Rebecca de Havilland, although I think in Ireland, a lot of people probably still know you as Rebecca Talon, you know, yeah. you've been introduced on TV or doing any press stuff. So um, in a way, names are obviously important to you because you've chosen them across time. But in another yeah. way, most people only have one name or maybe two names. I mean, you were married as well a few times. So what is a yeah. name for you and how important is it to your sense of 
Well, well, I was also a few names um, kind of before I got to Rebecca as uh, Miss Kimberly still remembers me as Pagan and she just loves that name. She'd go, oh my God, why didn't you keep that? And I think I called myself Pagan at the start because I was so anti-Catholic. Yeah, you know? it's, it's the exact opposite. Yeah, so, um, and then I think I had a brief spell in Amsterdam as Candy. Candy. As Madam, Madam Candy when I was running the brothel. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so but when I actually when I actually sat down to taking my hormones and becoming Rebecca, I was very, very well, I want to pick a name that I can live with, that I can age with, even though at the time I didn't think I was going to live to even be the age I am because of HIV and that. And I just remember thinking I liked Rebecca because also Within that name, it gave me different names. It gave me Bex or Becky or Becca or, you know. So, um, yes, I, I suppose I've always been a one, maybe for reinventing myself. I had to reinvent myself so many times along my life, but I don't have to reinvent myself from Rebecca because this is the invention I really wanted to end up with. And, I, I you know, I've often thought, I've never, ever thought... I shouldn't have picked Rebecca. I actually like the name. Yeah. No, yeah. And I've lived with that now for well over 30 years now, you know. You say in the book that you're never too old for a swing, referring to like a play park swing that kids would sit on. You yes. said the freedom of a swing when you're young is something else, isn't it? Legs out, head back, higher and higher until you feel like you're flying. Nothing or no one can catch you, pin you down, make you do the stuff you don't want to do. Now yes. you are a grown woman, um, do you get that feeling like you're on a swing in life? Are things going good? Yeah, I do. And do you know what? We were just talking actually recently with my family, all my grandnieces and nephews that are in that kind of young, they all adore me because that inner child is still very much there in me. And for me, we had a swing when I was younger and it was my dance floor. To, you know, because I, but later years, my dance floor was where I could go and dance. And I just, it was where I kind of meditated. Every, every fear I had, everything left me on the dance floor when I was dancing. My swing in my earlier years was that to me. Yeah. I can just one in the and it would just, and I can still see it. And it just meant so much to me. I, I just adored that swing. And I still reckon that before, if I ever get a play, I would still love a swing. There's something about it. There's something just so lovely, so freeing. It's like flying without flying. Yeah. You know, it's just that, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's the best drug I've ever taken. Well, there we are. So for our listeners at home, if you are considering turning to a life of crack cocaine, don't, because you could just get a swing put in the back garden that's all you need. Rebecca, this has been a great conversation. I'm so glad. This is the first season that we're doing of this talk show podcast, The Fantasy Project. And um, you were right up at the top of the list of people I wanted to speak to. Um, so I'm so glad that we've had this conversation. And uh, we'll post all the links to your current work so that people who are interested in what you're doing now can go and take a look or reach out to you for any of your uh, inspirational talks or corporate events or anything like that. And congratulations on the show. Well done. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you.
Joining us now for Queen's Corner, every single week we do this, where I sit down with one of my cabaret pals from the world of nightlife and performance, is none other than Candy Heels, the Hungarian drag queen who is here to steal your man and your job and anything that you might have on your person. Candy, how are you? Hello, hello, Vanity. Hello. I'm very good. How are you? Still on Universal Credit, you see. Uh, are you now? Are you ready to? But you've been performing quite a lot, though. You're a busy girl. Well, we're, we're not claiming those monies. <laughs> um, you are from Hungary, which I find um, has always been interesting because you have uh, you have you, you're not a big fan of your own country, are you? Not really, not really. Well, I'm I'm very happy to be here. Um, uh, it, it's 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 not. Um, I don't know how to put this, but it's it's just not very safe to live there. I would say not for LGBT people, LGBTQ people. Um, and and it, it just got worse since I left. So, um, so no, I'm, I'm not even planning to go back or, or anything. Um, even to go there to visit, it's, uh, it's very stressful. It's interesting because we've just listened to the interview with Rebecca and obviously her life has been going from rural religious Ireland to then Dublin to transitioning and, and living in London and going around Europe. And her life has seen, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to call her old, but she's seen so much change over time. Um, whereas, as you've just said, in your home country, things aren't necessarily moving forward, actually. They may be maybe even going back a little bit. Things seem quite tense over there in Hungary. This this is like um like an unspoken dictatorship sort of thing is um is they're not saying it is but but it truly is it's in the last couple of years um they they kind of made it a rule that you're not allowed to talk about anything um gay or LGBTQ related in the media or in education so if you can't talk about these things in education and the media, then you surely know that, that, that things are not going to change very quickly. Or I'm not saying ever, but while this, um, this government is, um, is on, like, uh, it's, it's not, it's not going to change because it's pushing everything back. It's, uh, they took away trans rights as well. Like um, uh, trans people, um, they only can be identified as their birth gender. Uh, and I don't know. Um, I, I think the, the only way is to, to get out of there. You, you can only live your, your life and your true self if you move away from there uh, just the same way as um, Rebecca did. Yeah, Rebecca's life is kind of similar to a lot of, um, I mean, it has its extremes, but a lot of people can identify with running away from the little village or she didn't maybe feel she was running away. But, um, but you know, I came from a small village and wanted to be in the city because you want to be near people who like you. And also you want to be around other, I mean, you know, you know where all like, the cute boys like, are. Like They're in the city. city. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, the, there were cute boys where I'm coming from, but they were surely beat me up if I would approach them with, a, with you know, mm. a sexual interest or anything. Um, and you, you know, you know, Rebecca as well, don't you? Because yes, she's yeah, always yeah. in Soho and so are we. So we, we, it's, it's a nice community in Soho. We know mm. a lot of people who work in activism, not just the performers, but the people who actually do like yeah. quite serious work. <laughs> I, I met her, we were raising money for, uh, for the Terence Higgins Trust, I think. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, we we instantly bonded because she was she was just so um, approachable, so funny, and also like uh, she has this. Uh, you said it in the interview. This this calm to her, which which attracted me instantly. It was just a, a lot of fun to be around her. And um, I always I wonder if yeah. she had that when she was younger. Like I wonder Probably if the not. mellow energy is something she's gained from having been through so many dramatic ups and downs or if maybe she was an old soul when she was young in i read her book which you should read as well because it's quite interesting i mean i think it comes with experience yeah well i would assume so that some people are quite old souls do you know what i mean even when they're young they're quite wise Mm. all 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 those things she said uh i think that that's all based on experience and uh, the lot of things she went through uh i really like about her that she's she's uh, she's, she's she's now focusing on the, the big picture the more the more important things um she she doesn't she I'm, I'm very similar i don't really like bullshit myself so um i'm not saying that these these um highlighting um non-binary things and everything is is not important it is important but um but there's there's the bigger picture when she focuses on, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, I think that we've because we perform in we play with gender as artists. So yeah. for us, gender is a playground rather than like a set of strict rules. And because mm. it's a playground, because we've learned to to see the adventure and the fun and the silliness in it all, and to not take anything too seriously, um, it can sometimes be quite. Um, jarring when people are take identity extremely extremely seriously because to us like our way of escaping that is to just make light of everything Mm. I think that Rebecca has the same thing it's like well actually she had to fight to be recognized um she had to to fight and she paid a high cost for the trauma of her younger years yeah um, to become the woman who she is who she wants to be and so actually for her she can see some things as feeling a bit like small potatoes compared to the mountains. Yeah. You know, every every individual has to climb their own hills and mountains. She's she, she been through all that, I guess. And and um, in in the end, you see what's important. And um, I myself, I identify as non-binary, um, but I think I'm lucky. I'm very lucky to to be able to live my true self here in London. And um, it, it doesn't come up much because I'm working as a drag queen. So I'm not really treated as, as, as a man or a woman. I'm treated as something in between or the, or the third gender or, or, or whatever, which is really comfortable for me. I used to work in a, this makeup store and um, it was really, I got used to it, but it was, at first it was really weird when, uh, they were pointing at me. I was like, "Ask that man." And I looked around. They're like, "Which man? There's no man here." I was like, uh-huh. "Oh, that was supposed to be me." And um, I, I'm not taking that. Um, I mean, I don't really get into situations where I need to treat this very seriously. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Well, because you I, felt I you surrounded yourself with like sort of like-minded people. Because yeah. I always think, if you lived in the forest, if you lived in the middle of the mountains in the forest and the only thing only other creatures you ever saw were deer and you know and and squirrels 
it wouldn't matter to you at all. It wouldn't. It or or who your gender was. It, that only is a concern in relation to other people. Because yeah. identity is like a negotiation. It's about you and other people and like how you all interact. And if you've surrounded yourself by people who see you the way you'd like to be seen, well, that's a good thing. I mean, I hope that everyone finds their tribe. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, if you were stuck back out in that forest, in that tree, it wouldn't actually be that important if you were a man or a woman. So um, maybe it's not as important as people think it is in daily life. And that, that's that's why I'm very happy that I moved here because back in Hungary, I, I wouldn't be uh, been taken seriously with with any of my um, gender issues or or sexuality or, or whatever. They're just you're just expected to to be a man or a woman and uh, probably not you know gay or bi or trans or 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 whatever. It's just um, it's not really. They, they don't really consider that. that. That's like a sort of taboo there. Well, I think good for Rebecca for being one of the people who broke through and something that was very, probably quite lonely back in her day to mm. work out who she was and how she wanted to be received by everyone. Because um, obviously now, in a way, I think it's probably harder now because, you know, some people perform better in life when they've been given quite strict lines to color inside of but there are people who need to break out of those lines because they have something else to express and i think we have to respect mm. that um i'm i'm really happy that rebecca came on because i want to i want to have conversations with people who have had interesting lives um i'm trying to keep a nice balance with these guests of people who are mm. you know people from the lgbt world but also we're having some performers we're also having some yes people in politics um so i'm 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 just i'm glad she came on and i'm glad we got to have the conversation i think she's very inspirational you know what i mean it's 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 it was really really nice to to listen to her her story i um i've got another glimpse of um of, of her story when she was uh had a speech in uh Q-Bar at world aids day and i i I got to <clears throat> know more about her and uh, and the whole HIV and everything. How they um, told her that she she's probably going to be dead in a couple of years, and uh, it, it's so good that she's she's still here and and things are improving. Um, I I think it's 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 just you know it's really it's really good. Well, Rebecca is a survivor and you and I are still surviving in the rat race yeah. that is London. Um, Candy, thank you so much for coming on for Queen's Corner here at The Vanity Project. Well, thank you for having me, Vanity. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.